It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Russia has begun an air attack on Ukraine. Go to foxnews.com. I'm Stuart Vonnie. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, February 24th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Of all the former Soviet bloc countries, why has Russia's president been so focused on Ukraine and why now? Putin has, it's interesting because I think all along he's underestimated the Ukrainian people. I'm Dave Anthony. He's a war hero awarded a Medal of Honor for saving lives in a deadly battle in Afghanistan. So why does Dakota Meyer think he's not deserving? That day was the biggest failure of my life. And but that's what drives me every day. It's what drives me to get up and work harder. It, it, it reminds me that reminder of the failure that I've had of, of watching people that I care about die. And I'm Jason Rantz. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Russia's President Vladimir Putin shared what historians agreed was a false history lesson of Ukraine earlier this week. The U.S. Embassy in Kiev shared a meme on Twitter. On the top, a row of pictures of large, beautiful cathedrals and monasteries in Kiev dating back as far as the year 996 through 1108. Below, a row of pictures of Moscow on these same dates with the same picture over and over of dense, untouched forest. A not-so-subtle rejection of Putin's claim that Ukrainian statehood is fiction, that Ukraine is merely a lost part of Russia. You want to be decommunized? Well, we're quite fine with that. But don't stop halfway, as they say. We are ready to show you what decommunizing Ukraine really means. Monday, ahead of sending troops into Ukraine's Donbass region, Putin said Ukraine was an artificial creation of former Soviet leader Vladimir Lenin after the communist revolution in 1917. This week, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, told Brett Baer on Fox's special report. So we are in the 21st century and the leader of one country says openly that the, his neighbor has no right to exist. And from what he said yesterday, he indicated his intention to literally destroy it. He said Putin's speech was not just about recognizing the independence of the Luhansk and Donetsk regions in eastern Ukraine but that Putin is acting essentially out of fear. It's dangerous for President Putin, who runs an authoritarian uh, regime, uh, to have a successful democratic country next to him. And Ukraine, because if the Russians see that democracy is possible in Ukraine, that market economy without corruption can work in Ukraine, then why shouldn't it work in Russia? This is, of course, not the first time Russia has invaded Ukraine. A short trip back in time just eight years ago when Russia went into Crimea. Prior to that, Russia backed separatists in Georgia in 2008 as that country began to more closely align with the West. I think uh, Ukraine, from Putin's perspective, it's a country that truly matters. It's a large country. It's the second largest country in Europe. Jack Keane is a retired four-star general, Fox News senior strategic analyst, and chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. And he believes that it really was a part of Russia, and the Soviet Union never should have granted it its independence. And I think this has been very personal for him. And it began in 2014 because Yanukovych was his stooge. Ukraine was operating, in theory, as an independent country, 
but closely aligned with Russia. And the people began demonstrating against Yanukovych because they wanted economic outreach to the West, to the European Union, and also political and military alliance uh, with NATO. So they were looking to the West. And why was that? Because the, the people saw it. The pressure was on the leaders, the opposition leaders, they can see Russia and what's happening there every day, and they can see what's happening in Europe and the United States every day. Not too surprising. They wanted prosperity mm-hmm. and uh, actually more freedom is what the West had. So Yanukovych, um, what he did is he went down during the Sochi Olympics to see Putin. And Putin told him, look, you've got to clear the streets. Tiananmen Square, 1989. Tehran, 2009. All of that worked. What didn't work was Mubarak in Cairo in 2010, and he wound up in jail. And, but th- that was the examples that he's used. And he says, you've got to go back and clear the streets. And Putin gave him snipers to do that. The Ukraine military had no snipers. And I got briefed on this by the Ukrainians standing right in the square where this took place a few years ago, just prior to COVID. And they delivered headshots to many of the leaders. And the streets did get cleared. But the next day, the number of people in the streets doubled or tripled. Mm. And there was just unbelievable resolve and determination. So much so that Yanukovych, over the period of two or three days of this, fled the country to Russia. And Putin was humiliated, embarrassed by this, not just on the world stage or with the Ukrainian people, and with the Russian people. Keen says Putin felt he had to do something to recover his image and Russia's image and invaded Crimea. Keen says he believes Putin thought at the time that when he moved into eastern Ukraine, he thought he'd end up occupying more land than he did. But in the lesson learned report that they wrote after the 2014 issue, it turns out that they believe they, didn't, they had too much reliance on unconventional forces and hybrid warfare. And the resistance by the Ukraine military, but also numerous volunteer partisan battalions of people who were not soldiers, who came with their weapons and provided significant resistance, so much so that they were not able to take all the territory that they wanted. And they said, we rely too much on unconventional forces. We should have used conventional forces. And, of course, that has informed them significantly in terms of what we're all witnessing now. This is a massive amount of conventional forces, literally 70 percent of his army, and 80 percent of that is is deployed and ready ready to attack. That is the history of it. But Putin has, it's interesting, because I think all along he's underestimated the Ukrainian people. And he, he doesn't recognize that from 2014 to the present, these ensuing eight years, uh, with the threat that Putin forces now in eastern Ukraine, sitting on and in Crimea, sitting on Ukraine territory, could move further to the west and take more territory. That was the threat. The Ukrainian people did not turn to the east and to Russia the way Putin wanted it. They have had three successive anti-Russian governments after Yanukovych was run out. And every single one of those Ukrainian governments look to the West for further integration. And the one that has done it the most aggressively 
is Zelensky. And I believe that Putin probably assumed, I mean, I'm just speculating now, that here comes this entertainer who has become the president of the country. I, I bet he wrote him off as a lightweight. And Zelensky has been anything but that. Keen says at this point, nothing will stop Putin. While Ukraine's foreign minister pushes for additional sanctions and President Biden has promised additional sanctions should Russia further escalate, Keen says this is bigger than sanctions for Putin, who has likely already calculated that cost. But have the Russian people. And what do they think of all of this? Fox's Amy Kellogg is in Moscow. Do Russians agree with Vladimir Putin on Ukraine's history, that Ukraine is really a part of Russia? Or, or is it hard to get a sense of how people may, may feel about that line of thinking in terms of, of their ability to speak freely on such a topic? You're right. It is a hard one to answer. I don't get the sense and I don't purport to know how this country feels and have my finger on the pulse of it. And I'm in Moscow and I talk to a lot of people who are educated, worldly people who don't have any desire to take back Ukraine. It's not something that people I've spoken to consider would make their life any better. They basically want to like Ukrainian people because so many Russians have Ukrainian relatives or Ukrainian friends. So the idea of taking Ukraine just doesn't seem to me something that the average person is thinking about. The other side of the story, however, is that Russian TV, I just watched one of the bulletins and it was nonstop coverage of the supposed attack on poor Russian people in Donetsk and Luhansk. And the spokeswoman for the investigative committee saying that they have 400 cases that they've opened and they've created files on these people for criminal activity. And they are Ukrainian military personnel of, a, of an elevated rank, not just soldiers. So they're building this case on TV that there's genocide going on, that Ukrainians are attacking Russians in parts of Eastern Ukraine. And I think that those shows are watched by a lot of people. I don't have figures for that, but my sense is that here in Moscow, where people are maybe more tech savvy than they are in the heartland and more plugged into a whole different range of influences, I, I think a lot of people in the heartland of this vast country are watching this and perhaps not questioning it. Amy, what is the sense as to why now? We know Russia's been involved in Ukraine. Um, before the, the invasion of Crimea, there was a pro-Russian president in Ukraine, Yanukovych, and he was pushed out in 2014. Um, we know thousands of Ukrainians protested him, I think after he stopped a plan to sign a treaty with the European Union. But did something specific trigger this action now? Apparently, there are a lot of things. One is that Zelensky the president of Ukraine was a little more assertive than they had thought he would be. You know, he's this young, charismatic comedian populist who was the darling of young Ukrainians and people who wanted something different. It, you know, kind of reminds me of how Trump rose to power, too, that people wanted something that was not establishment, because establishment is often in this part of the world associated with corruption mm. and some sort of stagnation. So I think. President Vladimir Putin maybe thought he'd have an easy ride with Zelensky, and Zelensky has been quite strong, as we've seen. And this Minsk accord about 
granting, which was in large part about granting the East, these regions that have since declared their independence and been recognized by Russia, some form of independence, some form of autonomy, which would have made Ukraine sort of more naturally divided and, and therefore much, much, much less likely to ever even want to join NATO. So there was that. Then I, I guess there were some mentions that Ukraine felt that it, it could pursue nuclear weapons or it should have them because it had been let down after having given up its arsenal at the collapse of the Soviet Union. So that raised some bells. And then also some people like to say, well, President Trump was either friends with Putin or tough on Russia. And so Biden was perceived as weak. And this was a moment to go in and, and take advantage of a situation. And I don't really believe that to be the case from what I've heard from people here, because Biden, um, as we've seen, has been has not taken a soft line on this story. And I think it was really more a function of the declared tilt towards managing China. That seemed to be maybe Western eyes a bit off the prize and American eyes a bit off the prize and a perfect opportunity for Putin to move in. Another factor, which is totally anecdotal, but I find it interesting because I've heard it many times, is that the absence of Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, she left the stage after a very long career. And she apparently had a very good hold on President Putin. And then, of course, Jessica, there are other things. I mean, people here and, and people in the West are speculating about Putin's state of mind, his state of health, his sort of wanting to leave a legacy or perhaps some paranoia that's coming with his isolation after being cut off from a lot of people during COVID. So there's a whole psychological piece to this that we can only speculate about. But these are some of the things that um, appear to be factors in the timing. Amy Kellogg, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. This is Jason Rance with your Fox News commentary coming up. Nearly six months after the U.S. military left Afghanistan in a chaotic withdrawal, thousands of American troops have been deployed to Europe in a show of force to support Ukraine. We are united in our opposition to Russian aggression, and we're united in our resolve to defend our NATO alliance. President Biden's already sent troops to Poland. I have authorized additional movements of U.S. forces and equipment already stationed in Europe to strengthen our Baltic allies, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Let me be clear, these are totally defensive moves on our part. We have no intention of fighting Russia. Dakota Meyer knows what it's like to be deployed, though when he was a Marine Corporal in Afghanistan, he was in a war zone and ended up a hero, saving lives in a deadly battle which earned him the Medal of Honor that President Obama put around his neck in 2011. The, the, the men and women who are wearing the nation's cloth and who, who, who raise their right hand and, and willing to go do the nation's bidding, um, you know, look, they're the best people on the, on the face of the planet. Now a former Marine, Sergeant Dakota Meyer has co-authored a book out next week with Rob O'Neill, the Navy SEAL who famously killed Osama bin Laden. It's titled The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy. You know, we don't go do things just for the United States of America. We do things uh, because it's the right thing to do. The issue is, is our leadership. The leadership 
from George W. Bush all the way up to, you know, President Biden. I, I mean, it's just the leadership that's making these decisions to send us to go do this. I mean, why are we going to Ukraine? Like, why would we go defend Ukraine? What are we doing? Isn't it the same principle that we fought in wars in the past from Korea to, to Vietnam? And that is the, the, the protection of democracy and the, and the spread of, of dictatorship, like Vladimir Putin trying to extend his power and maybe try to be almost like the Soviet Union was. And, and again, isn't, isn't that the principle? Well, I mean, is it I mean, is is that the principle? I mean, look, you know, the, you I mean, I think we could agree that the Taliban is probably one of the least sophisticated governments, military, whatever you want to call them in the world. I think we could agree on that. Right. Yeah. Um, but we fought them for 22 years with the best technology on the globe. And guess what they did to us? They waited until we left. What's the objective? Right. Are we going to go over there and just I mean, look, if you think that at the end of the day that that these things are not being dictated, if you think we didn't stay in Afghanistan, I mean, in Iraq, as long as we did, if you think we stayed there because we're trying to defend the globe or put in democracy or all these ideas or or it's just not real. I mean, look, there's I, I can just say a, a few few names of why we were there. Right. Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, uh, General Dynamics. I mean, it, it's just the, the fact is, if we were going over there and we really wanted to win wars and we really wanted to make the world a better place and let's go in and do it to where we make it a better place and we leave it a better place. When's the last time we got in a conflict to where we left that place better than we found it? Well, Afghanistan is well, Afghanistan certainly is um, a place that that has had a hard time. I mean, Russia tried. There have been attempts at Afghanistan for for generations and, and centuries, and it's been a very difficult place. We left almost six months ago. Did you feel? I mean, you fought that war. You got a Medal of Honor, which we'll talk about for for what you did and the valor in your fighting in that war. Did you feel like what you did was for naught? That that we lost? Yeah, yeah. I mean, did we not? I mean, look the way I the way I chalk it up is while we were there, Afghanistan was the safest it had ever been. You know, you had females being able to go to school you know while while the united states of america was there while the men and women of this country that were wearing the nation's cloth had boots on the ground afghanistan was safer and the people lived better than they've ever lived but the issue is is that what happens now why why did our guys die i mean obviously they died and, and guys would give up their lives to just give someone else a better day, right? Like that, that's, that's just what these men and women do. But on the backside of it, what did we accomplish? I mean, that, that's the hard question that no one wants to, to, to face, right? When you look back, you'll always be remembered for what happened in 2009. You wrote in the book about... Um, you are having to have a face-to-face, hand-to-hand battle with a Taliban fighter and that you can still see that man's face. That doesn't yeah. go away, does it? No. No, it doesn't. Um, but, you know, that man, 
that man changed my life forever. He changed my existence. You know, and I talked about it in the book, the way forward uh, that's coming out on March 1st. Um, you know, what was crazy about it was, is, is I remember, look, there's, there's a look on somebody's face as they're about to die. And I believe if they're conscious and aware of what's going on, there's, there's like this look of, I don't know. I don't know if it's defeat or acceptance or whatever you want to call it. Right. And I remember that moment of that man of where I, I like, I, I hit him a few times and um, I remember looking at him and just the realization of, and I, I can't say, do, do I think it happened in that moment? I, I don't know. Um, but looking back on it, I didn't know that guy, you know, I, I didn't think I was wrong, and I guarantee you he didn't think he was wrong. Well, if Uh, you didn't win that fight, you would not be here anymore. I mean, that's it, right? Like, and we were both there because we 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 believed in this idea that that was, you know, uh, uh, I believed in democracy. He believed in defending his home, right? Um, You know, I, I. Neither one of us thought we were wrong. He had people who were going to miss him and love him. And, 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 and so the point to the whole thing is, is, is we're at that moment, I realized that, that we're all more alike than we're not. And usually the things that the hate that we have for each other is driven by money and power and control of someone else putting that on you. So it's better to love than to hate. After that moment, you had to go you retrieved the bodies of Americans who were killed and you helped save the lives of others. Do you think about what happened after? Do you think about that still? What that, that entire time, that, that battle that you, you, you survived and then were honored for, do you still think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think about it every day. Um, all the lessons were learned through all lessons are learned through failure. And, you know, that was, that, that day was the biggest failure of my life. And, but that's what drives me every day. It's what drives me to get up and work harder. It, it, it reminds me that reminder of the failure that I've had of, of watching people that I care about die um, because I wasn't able to take care of them. Um, it, it drives me every single day to, to go out and continue to be better. But, but you saved lives. That's yeah, why you got I, the medal of honor. You saved lives. It wasn't a failure, was it? But I mean, I didn't, I didn't save all of them. You know, I mean, I, I don't live my life based on the wins and looking at, at what I did. I, I, I live my life based on the losses. You know, one of the things that came out, you know, the Marine Corps, when they put these summaries together, they talked about how many people I saved and how many people, you know, I, I killed and this and that. When people asked and they, it was disputed by, you know, a couple of reporters, I'm like, I, I don't I don't even know. I don't I don't know how many people I saved or how many people I killed. What I do know, though, is how many people died because I didn't I wasn't able to save them. And that's the only number that matters to me. You also wrote in the book about the day where the Marines contacted you, told you you were going to win the Medal of Honor. And you were like, I don't want it. Yeah, because I I don't you know, I I didn't deserve it. Right. Like it's just the, the Medal of Honor is such a mind. It's like the biggest mental twist in my head you know i live a life based on principles of you either win or you lose you either you either succeed or you fail right like there's no in between you know there's no participation trophies i don't believe in those i don't believe in you just get a, a a trophy for showing up and and you don't get rewarded you get you know for everything there's these are rewards or consequences and and when i got the medal of honor after losing all my teammates like i just it is such a mind-boggling thing to me but you know, it's like what we talk about in the way forward is, is, 
is how we turn these things into what gave me a platform. And maybe I got this platform so that I can go out and I can try to make a difference to people. So maybe I can go out and try to relate to people and help them get through the hardest times of their, their days, because that's truly what matters in this whole thing. It's not about being recognized for doing something good. It's about it's about taking what you've learned and your perspective and, and helping others on this walk of life get through the storm that they're going through. You're obviously trained well to do the job you do in the military. Then you get out. There have been a lot of people with you know post-traumatic stress. There have been a lot of suicides of veterans. What should the military do for those returning to civilian life? What, what should the military do better? Well, I think number one is like, we need to start setting the expectations for service members. You know, we're not owed anything. No matter what we've gone through, somebody's gone through worse. Your worst day is as as significant as my worst day. And if we can connect on that and help each other get through life, then that's what it's about. And and, and hold, hold each other accountable, right? I mean, look, PTSD is a real is a real issue in the military. But let me tell you this. It's a real issue across the globe. It's a real issue in every single person that walks the face of the planet. I mean, everyone either knows someone or has been through a traumatic incident. And it's like, we just need to stop, stop looking down on people, stop judging people. And we need to reach out, connect to each other and be there for each other. Look, it's, there's, there's nothing wrong with going to get help. There's nothing wrong with asking to get help. Like, look, we're all, everybody has had their first day. Everybody's had a bad day. Everybody's gone through something. And it's okay to, to reach out and ask for help. But on the backside of it, we have to be approachable to be willing to offer help. The book comes out March 1st, The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy. Sergeant Dakota Meyer, former Marine, is the co-author along with Rob O'Neill. And Dakota, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you so much. hear the news now you can with instant updates from fox news for amazon alexa just say alexa play news from fox in fox news it's the latest when you need it on demand from fox news and amazon alexa rate and review the fox news rundown on apple podcasts or wherever you listen it's time for your fox news commentary jason rants what's on your mind the biden administration has a new homeless czar So get ready for a woke approach to a crisis that will only lead to more homeless suffering on our streets while wasting billions more on a strategy that doesn't work. Jeff Olivet was tapped to be the executive director for the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness on January 31st. He landed the job after his two decades of experience in working to eradicate homelessness, that according to the Housing and Urban Development Secretary, Marsha Fudge. But it's that very work that qualifies him as a long-standing member of the homeless industrial complex, transitioning from role to role as he gives speeches on how to end homelessness as the problem just gets worse. Indeed, Olivet has seemingly minor accomplishments to show for his over 25 years of experience as a street outreach worker, case manager, and nonprofit CEO. Perhaps it's why his latest job was as an anti-racist consultant providing organizations with a, quote, racial equity assessment rather than tackling homelessness. All the evidence seems to suggest that Olivet views homelessness through a critical race theory and a social justice lens. He believes that racism causes homelessness and thus focuses much of his attention on the black community. He said, quote, what we do not say often enough or loudly enough is that racism and homelessness are inextricably linked. Yes, racism. It's time to speak truth. It's time to call it what it is. 
A homeless person isn't living on the streets due to an untreated mental illness or an addiction to heroin or meth, Olivet argues. He believes that those issues merely make one, quote, vulnerable to become homeless. Huh. Instead, he insists that, quote unquote, structural racism leads to homelessness. So he focuses his efforts on the disproportionate number of black people in the homeless population. He blames, quote, systems that are already disproportionately affecting communities of color, which disproportionately impacts blacks, end quote, such as the criminal justice system. Thus, he does not believe, quote unquote, colorblind solutions will work. Well, that's interesting because none of Olivet's comments explain why white people also experience homelessness. It doesn't even truly address the Latino and Asian homelessness population either. Still, wading through Olivet's race-based approach to the problem, you're going to find a strategy he believes works and could, in theory, impact homeless people regardless of race. Olivet supports housing first. This is a strategy that's pretty straightforward. The homeless get temporary or permanent housing right away with no strings attached. For someone who believes institutional racism has kept black people from owning homes or affording rent, and that, quote, housing is a human right, this approach makes sense. Problem is, it doesn't work. The homeless in our country need help. Blaming systemic racism and virtue signaling one's wokeness is not going to end their suffering. A better plan provides housing contingent on one's willingness to participate in intense wraparound services. In my view, the root cause for homelessness isn't racism at all. It is often a result of addiction and or mental illness. People are so often not homeless merely because they are without a home. After all, they were not born on the streets. They once had a home but lost it through addiction, mental illness, and sometimes through no fault of their own. Housing that comes with a permanent reliance on the government is not a good approach. If we want to end homelessness, we have to stop turning to the same politically well-connected nonprofit executives who have a history of viewing the issue through a partisan lens. A free studio apartment for addicts or the mentally ill to waste their lives away is immoral to say the least. Drug addicted or mentally ill homeless people won't seek help because their illness has a grip on their judgment. But under this new czar in the Biden administration, our judgment seems no better than the homeless addict. I'm Jason Rance. Listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up to the minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at guybensonshow.com. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.